Hi, welcome back to Founder Friendly, brought to you by SVS, your Strategic Venture Society, the premier venture capital club on campus. I'm Sky, your host, and I'm here with Sharanya, who's also on the Founder Friendly team, and she is um, going to introduce our special guest today. Hi, everyone. I'm Sharanya, and today we have NYU's very own Tosh with us. Avante is a junior at Stern, and Eli is a sophomore at Tisch, and they're the founders of Posh, a nightlife event marketing platform with integrated marketing tools and customer relationships. Awesome. Thank you, guys. Thank you guys for being here. No problem. No problem. So I guess our first question is, I mean, you you spoke a little bit about this when you were you know talking about what Posh does, but um, you guys are sophomores and juniors in college and you're taking on kind of incumbents like Ticketmaster or StubHub. Um, what do you think equips you to do that being a student and being, you know, in the know with what events students like to go to? I know Avante, you have been a DJ before. Um, no worries. Yeah. Um, so I guess that's, that's kind of how to answer that question is less because of being a student and more because of like our nightlife backgrounds um that like we kind of didn't know about the market and that's why we approached it so i yeah like you said i've been a dj since i was like seven my dad's a dj um and kind of i was able to fill out the market understand what type of events are going on and you know what's successful what makes an unsuccessful event um and then kind of apply that knowledge to you know what technology um needs to do to kind of improve those events i think also also like the lean nature of our startup and and how small we are um, our ability to make like new features in our tech and uh, completely change the direction we're going in just makes us super agile compared to these larger companies where there's so much bureaucracy preventing them from adding something like an SMS tool or changing something in their privacy policy so they can collect new data or something like that. Like we can do all that very easily and these larger companies aren't able to. So why we have that advantage, it's allowed us to like, like run around them and make new tech a lot more easily. Yeah, definitely. That's really interesting. And can you speak a little bit more about the technology and the pain points that you recognize that other companies aren't leaning into? Yeah. So I think um, the majority of the technology in Posh is based around automating the promotion process. So our, our flagship tool is our SMS tool, which basically allows event curators to super easily segment their audience and then reach out um, to the audience. So like you can tag 10 of your attendees as high spender table clients and another 20 as EDM hip hop lovers. And then obviously if I'm having an EDM event, I only want to text those 20. Um, and so, yeah, basically the, the, the tech is, is all based around allowing promoters to much easily get the, get the word out about their event and have to do less like uh, texting people one by one. Hey, are you coming out tonight? Blah, blah, blah. And they can super easily track um, how much each text and each link is uh, is generating for them. You were mentioning in terms of you know promoters, and I'm sure you've had experience with this um, going to events in college. And what is the strength you think you see as being in the college scene and knowing what events people are going to that allows you to you know better provide for these promoters? Yeah. And also, you know, now that we have COVID, 
like how are you continuous continuing to develop your product so that's kind of why we've uh we've been traveling around um so we we've been in miami for the last four months um our investors paid for us to have a apartment there um and we've been kind of just networking as much as possible there's a lot of things going on in miami as you know florida is pretty much the most open state um and so we've gone to orlando as well has some events going on in tallahassee on the website um I'd say probably 75 percent of our traffic right now is in florida um but yeah, I mean, we're really just going really hard down there. And I think we kind of try to do the Uber strategy of just kind of blitzkrieging every city ourselves in person um, and then moving on to the next once, um, you know, market's taken over. So thinking about this summer going to Texas or um, another open state. And obviously we're in L.A. opening doors right now um, just for the week, um, just so we get our feet wet and we can kind of be in the know about what is going on here so we can kind of keep in touch with these people. But at the end of the day, we're really just going to whoever's opening up first, maybe even thinking about the U.K. this summer um and figuring it out that way cool and i saw that you guys started up in 2019 which was obviously a couple months right before the pandemic hit so um do you think the pandemic like has hindered your growth and development or has it kind of given you time to figure out your company before things start to open up again our, our company would not have even been remotely possible without the pandemic. The, the disruption it's caused has been our market entry point because if the pandemic hadn't happened, we would have had to transfer people over from sites like Eventbrite to Posh while they're in the middle of running like weekly events or whatever it is they do. And now there's been this unique opportunity that hasn't happened since Eventbrite's inception where people have not thrown an event for several, several months. And so they're super open to trying something new because instead of like breaking their weekly stride, they're they're coming back from such a long break that it's a lot easier to get them onto a new platform. And uh, also I think this is just like kind of a renaissance in tech where similar to when the, the 08 financial crisis happened, like um, when these big companies start taking on a ton of debt, like I think Eventbrite literally just did a debt round, right? $500 million debt financing round. Yeah. yeah so. so they're focused <laughs> on other things and it allows, it allows startups to kind of penetrate the market really easily. And now that, you know, this opportunity has risen for you guys, you're talking about, um, like developing these relationships with can you explain a little bit, is it event spaces or what relationships are you looking to develop right now? Yes. So um, basically our user, like our, you know, our target kind of customer is an event curator. So it's someone who basically uh, makes a deal with a venue, um, promotes the event, hires the DJs, creates the flyer, and then promotes it on social media. Um, so most people would call this like a hospitality group um, is what they're kind of known as. Uh, and you can really find them pretty easily just going on Eventbrite, looking up music events or things, uh, as well as, you know, promotional groups that hire DJs and things. So if you ever go to an event at a club, it's usually not hired. The DJ is not hired by that club. A promotional group will pay the upfront cost of the DJ, create a deal with the venue for, you know, X percent of the tickets they generate and the bar they generate. Um, and then basically their job is to promote that event and bring business to the venue. So we could, you know, make deals with venues and things. And there are venues that do use ticketing platforms and have in-house promotional teams. Um, but really the bigger value add here is for these hospitality groups who are going venue to venue and kind of aren't stuck to one location. Um, but definitely, I think after we kind of take over the hospitality scene in terms of these groups, we definitely want to target venues. Oh, that's very interesting. I didn't realize that. So I guess shifting gears a little bit. 
just to learn about, you know, you are students and what resources have you had that has that have helped you now get to where you are um, at Posh? Uh, said the lab, definitely not. Um, well, honestly, so honestly, I, I I think this is a great opportunity for us to say we we were both in the eLab accelerator, um, for different startups, and there's some amazing people at the eLab that were that helped us a lot in terms of learning about like customer discovery and stuff. With that being said, I actually think that well, personally, I think Avante thinks too though that NYU is still seriously lacking in terms of like. Um, entrepreneurial resources. For yeah. Sure. Like, like we, we actually are in the process of trying to get, uh, like legal help on one side of our company. And it's just been a pain. Like we went to NYU for it and it's been a total pain. They have dubbed our emails for emails. They have yeah. not even responded. So, um, so NYU <laughs> is like definitely lacking in entrepreneurial resources still. And it's also just like, I feel like the startup ideas that they usually support are so cookie cutter and like very, they're always trying to play it super safe and PC. So it's like an idea like this is automatically getting shot down um, by NYU, which is kind of frustrating. So I don't know. That's how we feel about it. <laughs> NYU doesn't want to support the club scene. <laughs> well, you have I, to come back no, to the then. Yeah, I think it's just overall, they're just, they, they don't, um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I think if it's not like PC, yeah, I guess you're right. Like it's not PC. Like my older startup was like about community building and they were all for it. Um, even though I think that this is a better idea, they were more for that idea just because it was more like kosher. So like, I guess, I don't know. It's like, it's like Sil there's a scene in Silicon Valley the TV show <laughs> where every single startup that comes up on stage is like, we want to make the world a better place. And, and Posh obviously wants to make the world a better place, but we want to do it in a way more like content-based, uh, like it, we want it to be cool without being one of these like lame school yeah. controlled startups. And yeah, they don't really have resources for that. And aside from NYU, have there been other mentors or I know you've uh, had some funding, other people who have given you resources and kind of leaned into the fact that you are students and see that as an edge for you? Yeah, I mean, pretty much. Yeah, obviously, our angel who helped lead our pre-seed um, and we're raising again uh, June first is the goal, um, like an actual round with a few angels. Um, but I think overall, it's just like you know, anyone in our circles in the nightlife community is really happy what we're doing because there's not a lot of technology in the nightlife space. And like, what we're doing is like, you can't text the CEO of Eventbrite if you have like a problem, but like for what we're doing is like, they can text us. Every single user has my phone number and it, it's been stressing me out lately because we're picking up speed, but like on the days where it's good, it does feel good when they're like, wow, this is dope or something like that. Or they oh, I really love this feature. Like those are the things that make our hearts warm. So like, that's the thing. And it also help, makes them feel like really valued and like they're part of a community. Like I always email people when they make an account, like welcome to the posh family. Like you're not just like creating an event on some random site where we don't really give a fuck about you and like we're sorry about that but um are they gonna like send you to like customer support or whatever like i am customer support and i am the founder so like it's like something where it's more legitimate and like more of a family-oriented thing yeah we interviewed another student founder who's echoed the same sentiment of having a very concierge service environment and it you know, improves the quality drastically and users really are attracted um, and appreciate that. Uh, so I think we're wrapping up our time now. At the end, we generally give the opportunity to the founders or our interviewers to plug anything or give a shout out to anyone. So you have the floor to... The vlog, yeah. Just follow our Instagram, honestly. It's at Posh Group NYC. 
um, because we are dropping a vlog. We have episode one out there already. Um, And the biggest thing is like, yeah, like we're trying to become a tech company that has like a community aspect to it. So we have merch, uh, we have this vlog, and we're um, trying to create as much content as possible to kind of create like that community aspect behind it. So Posh Group NYC on Instagram and episode two from LA is coming out probably next week. Great. Well, thank you so much, Avante and Eli. It's been wonderful having you guys roll. Be sure to look out for Posh events in the near future and rep Posh merch around Washington Square Park. Thank you guys so much for having us. We appreciate it. Thanks. So next up, we'll have the founder and CEO of Varuna. With us today, we have the uh, founder of Varuna, uh, Thomas Silikowski, who is a sophomore at Carnegie Mellon studying business administration. And Varuna is a digital design studio that uses Minecraft for education. And he actually started it in high school, which is really exciting. So what, you're about six years into this process, Thomas? Four years, four and a half, but definitely, yeah. Okay, sorry. Uh, (laughs) Well, thank you for joining us today. Can you tell us a little bit about like starting it in high school? Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So I started Varuna my, basically right before my sophomore year of high school. So it's just been over four years, about four and a half. And the way that Varuna works is that we basically reconstruct real life architectural works in Minecraft. So Minecraft is just like digital Legos. You can build anything that you can imagine. So a lot of people come to us and look for a recreation of like the Eiffel Tower in Minecraft or of their company headquarters or of this historic piece in the past. That's where the education element comes in. As for starting it in high school, I pretty much stumbled across this market accidentally. When I was building just in Minecraft during my summer after my freshman year, I started posting photos of what I had built online. So I would build these little huts. I would build some like ships, some boats. And I ended up getting some offers online to buy these just unique like elements, right? That I had built for like $5 or like $10. And at the time I was mind blown. I thought that was like such a cool opportunity that I could be paid to play my favorite video game. And basically since then, um, I ended up realizing that there was a whole market. I ended up founding the company as soon as I went back to high school because I realized I'm going to be busy doing all this homework. I'm not going to have time to keep this running. So I ended up recruiting four people initially. And then over the last four and a half years, we've grown to a team of over 44 employees. And we're from over, I think, like 12 different countries. We speak over eight different languages. So it's a very, very diverse community. I, you know, I looked into the worlds that you make and they're so intricate. What is your favorite map to date that Varuna has made? My favorite map would probably be this one called Aqua Princess. It's not the biggest. It's not, um, it's not like the most fascinating in terms of scale, right? But it has so many unique details. It's essentially this princess underwater holding a castle in her like extended arm. It has a lot of unique details. Like we have some sharks like swimming around her. We have like fish swimming around her. The whole theme is underwater. Uh, and it's definitely definitely my favorite build. It's just the amount of detail that went into it and the amount of planning to make it look like a moment captured in time is just makes it so unique. Awesome. That's not what I was expecting. 
looking a little bit deeper into like the kinds of worlds you make and how they're used in practice, especially with like the education, do you like work with schools and like make maps for like, use in the classroom or are there like other applications for the maps you make? And has that changed considering COVID especially? So I guess it's two questions. One is what came before, how has it changed after the pandemic started? Absolutely. I think there's been a huge change since kind of COVID came around. The biggest change that COVID added is that mainstream companies are now seeing Minecraft as a platform for marketing and education. So they're pouring a lot more money into it. Previously, it was, you know, selling to people who were starting a server in Minecraft and needed like a cool map to, to feature there. Schools in particular are super involved now post-COVID because they, they can't teach their curriculum in the same in-classroom setting that they normally could. During the early days of COVID, we did a bunch of work for these like newer companies that are, are newer clients, right? One of them was a school in England that basically part of their curriculum was taking these field trips downtown to their like historic town center and just learning about the history of their city. But since, since they couldn't get a group of kids together and actually take them in person, they basically made us recreate their downtown area. And then they would add like little areas with descriptions around the map. So players or students could just walk around the map, read about like the history of certain, I guess, castles, like cathedrals, right? Stuff like that. Um, and just learn about the history of their city. So I thought that was a super cool pivot for this school's curriculum. Another one was this really big music festival that takes place every year in Italy. They couldn't have it in person. Normally, like 60,000 people show up in person to, to see these artists perform live. However, since COVID came around, they weren't able to do that. So they hired us to create a whole music festival stage. Um, and then they hosted that in Minecraft at the end of July 2020. And they had some pretty big like headliners like... Um, Taiga performed there, Swedish House Mafia, a little bit of an older band, but it was pretty cool to see some like big names performing on a stage that we created. It's actually interesting. It, it leads into like another question, I, which was VCs have been coining this term called like the metaverse and it's become really popular since the pandemic started. And one big way we've seen that come to use digital concerts. Roblox, I think, had Post Malone. Like, Fortnite wasn't one of the largest. And, like, even you're mentioning there have been concerts in Minecraft. Moving beyond concerts, you think there's more opportunity for these digital worlds, like you've been talking about with corporations, that you've, like, expanded into that sort of space recently. Do you think there's space for, like, digital workplace tools in Minecraft? Yeah, I think that's a great question. There, there have been a lot of really cool applications of Minecraft since kind of COVID took control of the whole world. One of the most unique that I saw was a Minecraft co-working space. So instead of, you know, going to WeWork, getting your work done there, you could just log into a Minecraft server and you would just basically sit there in Minecraft while doing your work on your desk. So it wasn't really to, to play around with other players. It was just to be surrounded by an environment that was a uh, like productivity first environment. So that's probably one of the most unique ones that I've seen as for, you know, more than just music festivals. Absolutely. I think Minecraft has become a platform for marketing over the last few years. A lot of what I've seen in this business is, um, if we want to talk about the music business, not exactly a music festival, but a lot of um, artists are now basically creating Minecraft maps to go along with certain tracks that they release. So like some of their singles, 
Um, I'm not sure if you guys saw, but Disclosure, their latest album was all Minecraft theme. It was all about like energy and renewable resources on earth. And they were like, what a great platform uh, Minecraft would be to basically convey that message. So their album art is like this face that's actually created in Minecraft terrain. So it's really cool. It's like a bird's eye view photo of this. Um, I think it was a face. Yeah. It's interesting that you say that because a lot of what, you know, you and Andre have been talking about in terms of, um, what was it, Andre, the metaverse and, and just like digital ownership and like, I know, uh, music and, and Minecraft, I know Disclosure's latest song was an NFT. And I'm curious how NFTs are, whether it's like tangentially related or influencing um, your work, whether it's in, you can now charge higher fees, um, how is that related at all or not? So NFTs are a really interesting space. We at Varuna have not actually gotten into NFTs yet. I'm wondering what the future of NFTs are going to look like once this market becomes super oversaturated, right? Since it's so easy to create an NFT. However, I have, I have had a few peers approach me being like, the art that you create in Minecraft, Thomas, could probably sell for quite a bit as an NFT. So it's something that we're looking into. We haven't confirmed any steps into, but um, it's a very cool expanding marketplace that we are considering getting into. Even like actually creating a token aside, people are looking at like digital art with a different lens now in terms of valuing it. Um, so yeah, I, I think that goes well for your future. Moving the direction a little bit more towards this like vibrant like community server ecosystem that I know exists in Minecraft. Um, I know that Proportionally, especially compared to other games, Minecraft servers have a lot of like younger kids who like play in all kinds of worlds, right? Um, do you think that Minecraft has done a good job at not even necessarily Minecraft, but the Minecraft ecosystem, good job at like helping transition these players into creators as they get older and like maybe even software engineers? I know um, in Roblox's recent like S1 filing, that's something they really tried to hammer home about like retaining their users and kind of upskilling them into creators in a way do you think that exists in minecraft and um like yeah that's how how does that play out absolutely i think a lot of the typical career paths like being an architect right a lot of current architects got their start in architecture playing legos i think the architects of our generation got their start playing minecraft so i as the technology changes as like you know toys that kids play with change and they become digitized Minecraft is filling this huge gap where it's teaching people to be architects from a very young age and software engineers as well, since Minecraft is just a very loosely put together platform and you can modify it in a million different ways. A lot of the work that we do for Microsoft, so we're lucky enough to have a partnership with Microsoft directly, so we feed a lot of our content onto the Minecraft marketplace through Microsoft. All of the work that we post there is using all vanilla Minecraft features. So we don't add anything new to the game. We just configure existing features or we use existing features in the game in a very creative way to create a whole engaging uh, gameplay in these maps. That's the type of work that we do for Microsoft. And I think it's basically shows off one of Minecraft's biggest fortes that as a game, it's very popular, but as a platform and as a tool, I would argue it's even more popular. So yeah, it definitely is helping people transition into, I, I would say, more traditional career paths. It's just opening a lot of doors for, for younger kids. A lot of the people who work at Varuna 
I would call them architects, but they are not licensed architects. They haven't formally studied architecture. But if you look at some of our works, um, I would be willing to bet that you'd say, ah, that was probably created by, you know, architects. And so what has that been like getting larger schools or enterprise clients being, you know, a college student? It's super cool because you get to work with people who are making really big changes in the world, right? I, I can't underplay that, you know, a lot of big things are happening on like on college campuses, like a lot of cool startups are popping up, but it is very cool having like huge music labels reaching out to like plan music festivals or having um, airports, museums, huge schools, uh, college campuses reaching out to, to recreate their infrastructure in Minecraft. It has definitely helped me feel more connected with like big things that are going on in the world. Minecraft has just been a huge platform that has opened a lot of doors for basically its entire player base, uh, including myself. And I think what's also interesting is, you know, I remember playing Minecraft as a kid and these games generally have like a set lifetime, I feel is when they're popular, but Minecraft has kind of defied the odds and just remained really popular, even though, you know, I, I, I haven't looked at it recently, but I'm pretty sure it's quite similar to what it was when I was playing like 10 years ago. Um, so what does that look like in terms of like the sustained relevance of Minecraft and of people wanting to use and enjoy Minecraft? That's a great question. I definitely agree. Minecraft has defied all odds and in, in how long it has stayed around. I think at one point it will die off, but I think it'll last another, another like 10 years before that happens. One of the things that keeps it alive is that people keep coming back to it. And I think the reason why people keep coming back to it is because Minecraft doesn't have a beginning and an end. It's not one set gameplay that you just keep repeating step by step whenever you come back to it. It's just, it's such an open world. It, it, it's a sandbox game at the end of the day, right? So you can do anything. And combining that with the fact that people feel very nostalgic about Minecraft since they played it for so many years growing up, it reminds them of their childhood. So whenever they go back to it, they have you know, this need to go back to it because of nostalgia. And then when they go back to it, they actually enjoy it and they don't get burnt out of playing the game because it's so endless. I think we're kind of near the end of our time, but I just wanted to ask you, Thomas, what should we expect next for Varuna? I think you can expect a large pivot into one type of industry. Over the last year, we've had a lot of exposure to different industries. So what we did previously at Varuna was creating these smaller style works for other Minecraft players or entities that were closely connected to Minecraft. Now, I think we're going to pivot either into the music festival space and become like the standard for online music festivals that happen like every few months, or we're going to um, maybe go all in on like NFTs or something like that. But I, I definitely have a feeling that a pivot is coming up soon. We look forward to seeing what that might be. Our, our final question that we'd like to leave our guests with is if there's a thank you or something you want to plug or maybe like Carnegie Mellon resources that you've utilized or just any of your programmers who work alongside you. Absolutely. I would thank the team. I mean, the, the team is 44 people and they work so hard. They're from all over the world and they, they work so hard to be able to work with people on the other side of the, the planet. And also they work so hard on a daily basis 
Uh, I mean, some of these architects, they're putting in 14 hours a day building in Minecraft. They're putting a lot of effort into making this possible. So I would just thank the team. They, they put their hearts into everything that they do. Uh, and I'm really proud and happy to be working with them. Well, thank you so much, Thomas, for joining us. So next up, we will have Alexandra Brocato, who is the CEO of Simplex Sciences. All right, so with us right now, we have Alexandra Brocato, who's the CEO of Simplex Sciences, um, which is a company that specializes in producing high-quality single-stranded DNA ladders. And Alexandra or Ali will explain what that means because I have really little idea. Um, but she is a rising junior at Yale studying biomedical engineering um, on a BSMS four-year track, which is quite badass. So hi, Ali. Thank you so much for being with us today. Um, and can you explain a little bit about what Simplex Sciences does? Yeah, well, first off, hi, Sky. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to share more about Simplex and what it's like to be a student entrepreneur in the biotech space. Um, so, yeah, so by commercializing technology that actually came out of a lab, um, Dr. Ronald Breaker's lab. So we we're commercializing this technology that he had developed and published literature on. And so basically, um, much like how RNA strands can cut themselves, um, a DNA strand can also cut itself um, through a process called self-hydrolysis. And... This recent discovery allows DNA to be manipulated in many, many unique ways. And the advantage here is that DNA is a much more stable molecule than RNA. And so as a result, our products serve an important and valuable function to various academic and industrial researchers um, that we sell our products to. Um, and it also sort of acts as a shortcut in the production of many products because DNA can cut itself, specifically in our current product line, which are single-stranded DNA ladders. Um, so yeah, so that's a little bit about the technology. Okay, very cool. So how did you get involved with Simplex Sciences then? Because it was founded in 2015 and you joined the team in 2018 as the CEO, or when did you take on that role? Yeah, for sure. So it was founded in 2015, obviously before I was a student at Yale, um, when three students you know, convened with Dr. Ronald Baker and decided to really capitalize on a niche market. A year later, they filed as a 501 profit because part of our aim is to educate students in what it's like to run a biotech company. Um, so we kind of have an educational value in making complex science simpler for both students um, and, you know, giving them exposure to high level laboratory work. Um, and then when I joined um, in 2018, I joined as a staff scientist, but I was really eager to get more involved and throw myself in Yale's entrepreneurial scene, which sort of up and coming. Um, and um, I was really fascinated by the technology, especially because there's a lot of applications in nanotechnology and CRISPR. I'm sure you guys have heard of that. Um, and within a year, I actually inherited the role of CEO. Um, and as CEO now, I'm, I've totally expanded our R&D efforts. Um, we've sort of are running new marketing campaigns to, to establish partnerships with bigger companies. So right now we negotiate like $20,000 contracts with big companies um, like Grail, which is a great startup 
out in California was just acquired for $8 billion by Illumina, um, Twist Biosciences, another public biotech company, and then, of course, other academic institutions we sell to Stanford, Harvard, MIT, Yale. And so right now in my role, I'm trying to establish more of those key partnerships. Um, and in addition, I manage a team of eight other students um, who all have various roles and have, you know, one foot in the science in our production, but also one foot in, you know, business, um, the finance side of things um, and, you know, forecasting how we can, you know, saturate the market. So it's it, both the science and the business. So um, you previously had co-founded um, a, a company called Sweet, which was um, an event like locating, as you said, like an Airbnb for event spaces. Um, and there you worked on marketing. And I'm just curious how some of the marketing skills that you acquired there have played into your role now as a CEO at Simplex and in your outreach to these both domestic and international um, research institutions. Yeah. So, well, before I address Sweet, I think across all startups, um, when it comes to marketing and it comes to, you know, growing uh, a company bottoms up, it's all about, you know, figure out a way to scale it and to address a real need in the market and establish a product market fit. Um, so with the Sweet example, um, Sweet, like you said, it was sort of an, uh, an Airbnb for, bo- for booking events. So we were a platform that allowed event Uh, managers, so students who wanted to throw a a frat party or a a professor who had a a student lecture dinner um, to basically source a venue, contact a venue manager, and then book the event all in one place. And for for venue managers, we gave them a whole ability to manage all incoming event inquiries um, and deal with various customers. So in light of that, it sort of acted as a two-sided marketplace and the supply sort of generated the demand and vice versa. So the marketing kind of came hand in hand. The more venue managers got, we got, the more event managers we got. Or, yeah, and vice versa. Um, with regards to Simplex, it's a bit different um, because obviously we're selling this lab product um, in a pretty niche market. Um, and so a lot of our marketing efforts really are involved in sort of education um, and letting labs know that there's an alternative to what is currently on the market, um, which is, you know, the RNA. And so by that, it really is twofold. Um, Reaching out to new research institutions um, and making ourselves available in various lab supplier networks. Um, For example, we recently partnered with Zangino, which is a new startup um, that is basically like a marketplace for lab equipment. So putting ourselves on there. Um, We have a strong presence um, online. We're completely e-commerce. And so a lot of times we actually use, you know, targeted advertisements because we know our product is being used in nanotechnology and other spaces. So by basically um, advertising as, you know, a cheaper, more cost-effective and reliable method, um, we are able to attract customers that way. So through targeted advertising. Um, And then the other aspect to this is, 
you know, focusing and spreading to various labs within each institution we've already established a presence in. So like I said, we've sold to Harvard, to MIT, we've sold to labs in China, we've sold to um, Novartis, um, Grail. So about basically developing customer loyalty is really incredible, incredibly important to us. Um, so doing repeat orders, um, signing contracts, um, leveraging the you know customers we already have to break into other lab spaces within these institutions. Um, so that's primarily how our marketing works, you know, providing that education through targeted advertising, getting on the supplier networks, and then once we're in those institutions, really then saturating them and expanding from there. Uh, yeah, that's a very like concrete plan. Um, I guess changing the direction a little bit. Uh, you've had like a slightly like more, I guess, vanilla experience with stars before. Um, I think you're involved with the VC fund now. Um, with that in mind, what do you view the relationship between VC and like deep biotech companies as? Um, from like my own personal experience, I know that that relationship can be a little bit contentious since it's like very high risk, but also high reward. And that's kind of reflected in public markets. So I guess, um, like, yeah, like, what's your point of view on on that relationship? Yeah. Um, so I think VCs play a really important role in biotech companies, right? Because they give them the financial capital in order to scale um, and commercialize and manufacture their technology more often than not. I think they come, you know, they play a role specifically at the later stages because early stage biotech companies can exist through non-dilutive funding, through grants, um, through capital from the government. A lot of times, you know, if you're producing some type of drug or good that has, you know, some type of uh, be benefit for patients or for research, there's a lot of ways to angle yourself so that you can get, you know, grant money or government money. Um, but having said that, there becomes a point which we're going to probably face next year because we're doing a lot of new customer acquisition this year where we're going to have to grow and receiving the money we get through other mechanisms or just through our revenue isn't going to allow us to scale at the rate we want to. And that's where VCs really come in because not only do they provide you with that financial support, but they also provide you with a ton of contacts um, and sort of shortcuts in order to produce and meet the demand that you have. Um, I think that a lot of times it's helpful when you seek out, you know, VCs or outside investors to find ones that have had experience leading their own biotech company. Um, and I think more often than not, when you speak to people in the VC space, um, they really are excited to get involved in healthcare. And specifically now with COVID and how that's totally transformed um, sort of the FDA approval process um, and the speed at which new drugs and um, you know, technologies are being created. Um, it's such an exciting space because they're able to get in and take a sizable chunk of the company because more often than not, the people leading these companies are scientists who don't want to be the CEOs, right? They don't have, you know, a lot of times the business acumen to lead the company. So when a VC comes in, there's a huge opportunity to take a lot of control and to basically scale it at their own pace and bring in their own, you know, leadership to do so, which provides a lot of opportunity um, for them to really capitalize on a market. Um, so I think it's a really exciting space. And I think that the presence of, you know, especially now, um, I guess, with COVID and the pandemic, I think that 
you know, we've totally seen new trends forming in specifically in digital health and telemedicine. Um, and even with Simplex, we've gotten a ton of new orders in this DNA space. And we think it has to do with people doing, you know, various work in terms of, you know, vaccines, genomics, proteomics, proteomics um, nanotechnology, and other spaces which are leveraging, you know, DNA's ability to self-cleave itself. I definitely think that there's a lot of opportunity for like, um, you know, biotech because and, and because of its attractiveness, as you said, to VCs, partially because it is so binary, um, which helps in terms of investments and definitely seems like you're um, preparing yourself well for a future in either VC or biotech. Um, so I guess this is a question kind of along the same vein, but slightly back to um, the marketing aspect. Being yeah. attached to the Yale brand, I'm sure, really helps in your ability um, to acquire, you know, the research institutions you have had, and I'm sure also in the future, if you are going to seek VC funding and if you've, you know, been able to get any grants so far. Um, so, can you talk a little bit more about either if it's the Yale brand or different Yale resources or just resources that you've been able to lean into as a student that have helped you? Um, scale simplex and and even helped in its you know early days. Yeah, for sure. Well, first I'll say we've drawn heavily upon the resources at Yale, specifically, you know, having many discussions with Professor Ronald Breaker, who was um, you know in Yale's um, MCDB, which is the biology department, um, and the original scientist behind this technology to basically better understand our market, develop our pricing, um, figure out ways to acquire new customers and expand, um, and really gain a better understanding of the single-stranded DNA and nucleic acid market as a whole. And he provided initially amazing insights into what researchers in this field want from their products, how they order them. Um, and this has allowed us to simplify our own ordering services and our own e-commerce presence. Um, in terms of Yale as a whole, um, first off, there's an incredible um, organization called Sci City, which was founded by Joe Sai, co-founder of Alibaba and Yale alum. And he created this, basically this, exactly what it sounds like, this city or this building that has tons of resources for student entrepreneurs. It's a place where we work out of, we benefit from free coffee and we've done um, various accelerators they provided for simple cash money. Um, but essentially they have uh, guest lectures, career panels with previous entrepreneurs. Um, they have accelerators where they provide money for students that some are year long, some are semester longs. Uh, they also have just um, various uh, prize money that you can apply for. Um, SciCity also just functions as a space where student groups can work and, like I said, benefit from free coffee and food and have whiteboard sessions. Um, and SciCity also has various um, professionals who have um, various skills in storytelling. So when we apply to pitch competitions, we'll leverage them for to help us write things. Um, other people have ex expertise in legal matters. Um, and on the subject of legal matters, a huge um, initiative we're, I'm leading this year is actually amending our bylaws in our 501c3. Um, and for that, we've partnered with Yale Law School. They have a free clinic for student groups um, that are basically pursuing um, startups where they 
basically have um, law students partner with you and advise you on legal matters. So they've helped us basically reconstruct our pricing quotes, our invoices, um, the way we process taxes, our 501c3 application. And so that's been an incredible partnership completely for free. Um, and the last thing I'll mention is Oh, Yale also has this incredible space called The Seed, the Center for Engineering, Innovation, and Design, which is basically a hub for all type of collaborative and entrepreneurial work, which literally has a machine shop, a wood cutting shop, um, multiple rooms where you can whiteboard, floor to ceiling whiteboards, and then an incredible staff, which is there to help you in these hands-on projects or in these creative projects. If, if you're a Yale student listening, I guess now you know exactly where to go to, to get help for your idea or to find someone else's ideas. Um, totally. So we're, we're getting close to the end of our time together. And at the end, we'd like to give you some space to like shout us anyone out or um, plug any new initiatives you thought would be like most relevant to our podcast. Um, yeah, the, the floor is yours. Um, I guess I'll, first, I just want to shout out my team. Um, I would we would not be um, where we are now without the incredible team of eight. We're a lean team, but we're a family, and everyone has such an important role as a result, and we keep it intimate and small for that reason. Um, so you guys are amazing. Um, I guess for everyone else listening, um, I I would say that you know I think there's a big stigma that students can't enter the healthcare or biotech space and that you need a PhD or you need to have really detailed knowledge on a specific field in order to create a medical device or in this case, you know, nucleic acids. And I would say that's not true at all. Um, you can absolutely do that. Um, and there are, like I said, a lot of resources to help you and support you in growing a company in that realm. And I actually think there's no better time than to, to create one now because um, you have no risk. You're in a college environment, which is the best place to learn and um, and creates a safety net for you to explore and create various things. So I would totally say go for it. Um, yeah, and also, yeah, and finally, if we actually are branching out and creating an educational component to sci Simplex Sciences um, to basically um, showcase what we do inside the lab and demystify what happens. And so definitely keep an eye out for that. We're sort of launching a whole Simplex Sciences educational component. That sounds awesome. I think, firstly, that's wonderful advice. And secondly, we'd love to see any like educational content that you have Um yeah, it sounds wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Alexandra or Ali, for joining us today. Um, and thank you, everyone, for listening. Uh, be sure to tune in next week. Um, and as always, if you have any questions, you can email us at founderfriendlysbs at gmail.com. Thanks again.